the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. The Israelites had rebelled against God and did not trust Him to give them victory in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. So God judged them, saying that no one above the age of 21 would enter into the promised land except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. God was merciful and just in His judgment. But what is next for the Israelites? What does God have in store for the people of Israel? We join Pastor Will in Numbers 15, verse 1. If you don't know the Lord, I can see where the Bible doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I say this because like chapter 14, like you get into this chapter and it's like this deep narrative of Israel's rebellion and rejection of God. And then you open up 15 and you're like, really? Like measurements and all that kind of stuff? Like totally seems to conflict with the emotion of the previous chapter. Those who do not believe the gospel, they pull the Bible apart and they say, oh, this was written by someone different. This is written by the priest and the other part was written by this group and stuff. And yet if you know the Lord and you go into this and you start reading through it and you go, no, 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 this makes perfect sense. This is exactly what should come right after Israel's biggest failure up to this point in their short history as a nation coming out of Egypt. You know, when we left Israel in chapter 14, they began their, remember, their new journey. Now, up to this point from Egypt, their journey was to get to where? The promised land, right? But now their journey is not to the promised land because they rebelled against the Lord. And so the Lord said, this generation will not enter the land. In Psalms, it, it says, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. God didn't wipe him out. He showed mercy to him like Moses prayed. But he said, you're not going to enter in in rebellion to me. And so he says, you're going to die in the wilderness. And then your children that you were worried about, they're going to go inherit the land. So now Israel begins their new journey through the desert. But how do they do it? By rebelling against God again. And they say, no, no, no. We'll go and attack the Canaanites. And they return from that brief invasion, defeated and disgruntled. And yet God hasn't cast them off. And so what does God do in chapter 15? He makes a fresh start. He makes a new beginning with them. See, the return to the laws and the sacrificial instructions may seem like an odd follow-up to the narrative of chapter 14, but it makes perfect sense when we consider that God is restarting their relationship. He's forgiving what's gone on, and he says, now we're going to start fresh again. Because in doing so, all throughout this chapter, all these instructions, he's giving them so that they will, they will keep them close to him. And in doing so, may we see that fresh starts require submissive hearts, hearts that are close to him, yielded to him. So chapter 15, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you become into the land of your habitations, which I give to you, and you'll make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, or a sacrifice in performing a vow, or in a freewill offering, or in your solemn feasts, to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd or of the flock, that he that offers his offering unto the Lord, he must bring a grain offering, meat offering, the King James says, of a tenth deal of flour mingled 
with the fourth part of a hin of oil and the fourth part of a hin of wine for a drink offering shall you prepare with the burnt offering or sacrifice for one lamb. Here we start off, and the Lord, I love this. This is like so cool because he says, speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, when you become into the land, what's the first thing off his lips after he's already told them, this generation is not going into the land? You know, they've just been whooped and they're unrepentant still. They're still not really right with God. We're gonna see that evidenced over the next few chapters as they maintain their rebellion. But even in the midst of that, the first thing God does is remind them of his surefire promise. Now, when you, I bring you into the land, this is what I want you to do. Why does God do that? He does it to remind them that he loves them and that his thoughts are toward them even though they don't deserve it. How many times when you've blown it and you're in a bad spot spiritually, what is the first thing that kind of you hear in your mind? You hear the words from the enemy, right? You are a loser. You're not probably even saved. God is angry with you. You can't even go to church. You can't read a Bible. You can't pray. You need to get your act together, sir or ma'am. And what do we do? Oftentimes we hear it, and my uh, youth group leader used to say, the only reason you have an arm is so you can detach it and beat yourself over the head with it, Will. That she was right. I do that so frequently. I think my life lesson will be just growing into the place where maybe I don't do that someday. And I have. I've grown a lot about not listening to that condemnation because that's not from the Lord. The Lord never does that. The Lord doesn't beat us up after our worst moments. He comes to us and he draws us to himself. And this is what he's doing right here. He reminds them of his love for them and that his heart and his thoughts are toward them. Why is that important? Because that's how we get right with God. That's what draws us back to him. Jeremiah 31, three says, I've drawn you with, what does it say? Bands of loving kindness. He kind of latches on the chain or the fish hook and he starts reeling us in with his loving kindness. He speaks to us and he goes, let's make this right. Let's fix this. Come to my throne of grace. Come and find the help and the mercy you need right now. Now to do that, of course, we got to what? We got to own our sin. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But he covers his sin shall not prosper, right? So the Lord draws us. He says, come, come into the light. Come right into my presence and lay it all out there so we can get it under the blood and we can move on. He draws us with those bands of loving kindness because he's loved us with an everlasting love. In Romans chapter two, verse four, I love where it says here to us when we're not where we should be. It says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and his long suffering, not realizing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? It's his goodness, his love, his kindness towards us when we don't deserve us that reels us back in and brings us back to his heart. If you're responding to God's love by saying, oh, I can do whatever I want, God will take me back, then I think you're missing the point. God does take us back when we fail, but if you use that as a license to sin, which the New Testament talks about and warns us against, you are missing the point. God does this so we will confess and forsake our sin and then stick close to him from that point on. But that's God's heart and he draws us with his love. He draws us with his kindness. He draws us with his grace. I think this also shows here when God makes this start that he wants to move on. He's not berating them from the past. How many times have you ever had a mistake or a failure and somebody comes up beside you and goes, I can't believe you did that. And then they just keep hitting you with that. You don't know how much that bothered me. Or you don't know, and then they just keep going and going and going. I'm like that. I, I have this warped sense of justice. Unless you've paid sufficiently under mine, then you're going to continue to get whatever I got to give. People sometimes would say to me and be like, I've already apologized. What else do you want? And you have to remember that because the Lord doesn't do that. How many times have, have I come to the Lord and I said, Lord, I, I know I already talked to you about this, but I'm just feeling so horrible at what I did. Lord, I'm so sorry. And he's like, what do you mean? We don't even need to talk about this anymore. We already did this. We already did, you know, took care of this. And, and the Lord's desire is to move on from that, to grow beyond that. He doesn't berate them for his past. He wants them to grow, to mature, to become strengthened. He wants them to trust him. He wants them to do well. You need to know that. 
God is never going to beat you up after a failure. That's what the enemy does. And, and I would ask you, are you listening to the enemy's condemning lies? Don't. There's this beautiful word in the Bible. It's the coolest word. It's not a word we normally like to hear. It's the word repent. And it means to change your mind, to turn around and start going in a different direction. But the beautiful thing is what is waiting for you when you do that? What did the prodigal son see when he turned around and went in a different direction? He saw the loving father running toward him. I love it. It doesn't say, and the father tapped his foot really loudly. And the prodigal son came back and he saw the scowl on his father's face. Or he saw him turn to the side going, oh, oh, it's you. The father is running out to him, which means he would have had to take in those robes and bound them up and put them in his sash. They didn't do that. Men in that culture didn't run like that. But he was so ecstatic to see that his son had come to his senses and turned around. When you come to the Lord like that, Lord, I just blew it, Lord. I'm so sorry. He's like, it's okay. Come on in. Let's throw a party. Let's fix this and let's make it right. The Lord loves it when we repent. And it's a beautiful word because he accepts us when we repent. So if you've been listening to the enemy's lies, stop. Repent and find the grace and the mercy that you need so you can grow and walk in obedience to him moving forward. Now, the when here shows that this isn't just a repetition of God's previous commands about offerings. This is not just something that we've seen before. This is actually new stipulations for when they come into the land because he starts off by saying, when you come into the land, these are some instructions, okay? Verse three, we have to look and see the offerings that he has in mind. What's he talking about? It's not every offering. Remember, there are five offerings. Two of them were compulsory or required. You had the trespass offering. That's when you did something you knew you shouldn't have done. And now you got to atone for that. And then the sin offering was where you didn't mean to do it, but you still failed to do something, failed to keep God's law. Those were required. Those are not in mind here. There were also three voluntary offerings. Those were the, remember the burnt offering, the one where you just said, Lord, I want to give you everything. That was the burnt offering. Then you had the meat offering, the King James says, which means the grain offering, which was you wanted to dedicate a period of service to the Lord. You'd want to say, Lord, I want to dedicate these next two weeks just to serving you and really focusing on that. And so you'd bring a grain offering for that to be acceptable to the Lord. And then the peace offering, which had a lot of reasons. It could be you just wanted to hang out with the Lord. Could be you wanted to make a, a commitment to the Lord, a promise, a vow. Or it could be you just wanted to have a big feast. You wanted to invite you know, your family and just celebrate the Lord. So all of these things could be a peace offering. So the, the two in mind here are the burnt offering and the peace offering, because it says, when you come into the land, you, the word will there means you want to. So again, these are the voluntary offerings, not the compulsory ones. And you want to make an offering by fire unto the Lord, and he tells us what it is, a burnt offering or a sacrifice. Now, the word sacrifice is different than offering. The word sacrifice is a word used for an offering that resulted in a feast afterwards. As he mentions here, the vow, performing a, whether it's performing a vow, a free will offering, just because you want to hang out with the Lord, or a solemn feast, uh, which would be like a holiday or you know something, a special event where you want to have a celebration. All three of those are peace offerings, okay? They're different kinds of peace offerings. And they all make a sweet savor unto the Lord. They please the Lord. So if you want to do that, he says, of the herd or of the flock, then there's some additional instructions for when you come into the land. What are they? Well, it depends on what kind of animal you're bringing. If you're bringing a lamb, the instructions are verses four and five. If you're bringing a lamb, and we know that because at the end of verse five, it tells us for one lamb. It says, then shall he that offers his offering unto the Lord bring a grain offering of a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hin of oil. A tenth deal, it just means at 10%. So if you're gonna bring a burnt offering or a peace offering, when you get into the land, you need to bring something else with it. Now, this was not mentioned in Leviticus. In the desert, they didn't have to bring this. But when they get into the land, they're gonna have to bring 
a grain offering that is 10% deal of flour, which would be about two quarts of flour, mingled or mixed in with a fourth part or 25% of a hin, and that equals about a quart. So you would take those things, mix them together, and you'd bake something for the Lord. So, and I'm always like a good bake, so I can understand why the Lord does too. In addition to that, you would also bring a fourth part or 25% of a hin, so about a quart of wine for a drink offering, shall you prepare with the burnt offering or sacrifice. So those two, peace offering or the burnt offering for one lamb. Now, why is it different when they get into the land? Simple question. Can they plant crops in the desert? No. Can they build vineyards in the desert? No, they can't. But they will when God brings them into the land. When they bring them into the land, they're going to build all sorts of crops. They're going to build vineyards and they'll have those crops coming in. So when they get into the land, they must bring these two additions with any of their, these two freewill offerings once they're in the land. Now, a lamb is a, a young sheep, which is why the offering is the smallest there. The size of these additions will increase with the size of your offering. So in verse 6 and 7, now we get the instructions for a ram. So if you bring a ram, it says, you shall prepare for your grain offering. Now, two-tenth deals of flour mingled with the third part of a hin of oil. So now you've got to bring 10% more grain and 8% more wine and olive oil. And for a drink offering, you shall offer a third part of a hin of wine for a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, verse 8, if you want to bring the big boy, you want to bring bullock, when you prepare a bullock for a burnt offering or for a sacrifice in performing your vow or peace offerings unto the Lord, then you shall bring with a bullock a meat offering or grain offering of three-tenths deal. So now you add another 10% more grain of flour mingled with a half hin of oil. So this is 17% more wine and more olive oil. And you shall bring for a drink offering, verse 10, half a hin of wine, so the same amount as the oil, for an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Remember, when we went through all these offerings, we said everything points to Jesus. So how does this point to Jesus? How do these additions point to the Lord? Well, remember... For us, the promised land represents not heaven. You may hear that sometimes. You know, some songs, people sing them. I love Christian songwriters, but some of them need to learn the theology better. They'll talk about, I'm going to go under the Jordan and find my way to heaven. No, you're not. I'm not fighting any giants or any battles in heaven, okay? I'm already victorious. The battle is over. The promised land symbolizes our abundant life in Christ. The Jordan represents, you know, that we cross over to get that, is that surrendered life where the old life of wandering in the desert is left behind. That old flesh life is left behind, and now we're going to walk in the abundant spirit of God, walking in his fruit, experiencing his victory, right? The land does not represent heaven. The idea here, the land represents our abundant life in Christ, living in victory over sin and being used by the Lord. Now we learned from our study in Leviticus that grain offerings represent our service to God and that drink offerings represent our lives being poured out to him because they would take that wine, which would be something you wouldn't want to waste back then and you would just pour it out. And the idea is right there on the altar. My life is being poured out for you, Lord. So this shows how our life and our service, they're not really going to honor the Lord if we're wandering around in the desert of a rebellious heart. They won't. You can be saved. You can, you can know the truth. You can understand theology, all those things. But your service to God won't please him if your heart is rebellious toward him. Your service is not going to be pleasing and your life is going to miss out on all the things God wants to do through you. We struggle with, why would God even want to use me? And I think the Lord's probably up there going, you don't even know how much I want to use you. We, we struggle with that sometimes because we see our own failures. We see our own inadequacies. We see our own weaknesses. Like, Lord, how can I do this thing you want me to do? Truth is, I don't know. If you come and ask me that question, I might look at you and go, I have no clue. But I know this. 
God is fully capable if you'll just give him your heart. If he'll yield your heart to him and say, Lord, I won't be stubborn. I won't be rebellious. Lord, I'm not going to be disobedient. I'm just going to follow you. Watch and see what he'll do. Because you're going to enter into that victorious life that the land represents. I want to read you a quote from Warren Wearsby. He said, the older generation of Israelites repeatedly refused to submit to the authority of God's word. And believers today commit the same sins. And the consequences are evident. Divided churches, dysfunctional families, and disobedient individuals who wander from church to church but never accomplish much for the Lord. Unless we submit to God's word, we can't successfully claim our inheritance in Christ and accomplish what God wants us to do. Isn't that powerful? But it's true. I have done this long enough. I I am nowhere near as wise as other pastors who've been doing this longer than me. I am nowhere near as wise. You know, I I remember there were times I'd come to Pastor Gibb for counsel and he would say something and be like, I cannot wait till I get to that place. (laughs) Because he just knows. He's been doing it way longer than I have and he just knows. There's such wisdom there. But I have been doing this long enough that when I look at someone and I see the decisions they're making that don't line up with God's word, I know what's going to happen. I'm not, I don't need to be a prophet, okay, to, to be able to tell that. And I'm not just some opinionated guy who's going, please don't do this. This is headed for bad things, headed for negative things in your marriage or in your family or whatever. I've watched people ignore God's commands enough. I know what happens when you do that. So I, I'm not a prophet and I'm not an arrogant guy who just wants to tell you what to do. I've just, I just, I've learned. It is better to trust the Lord and just do what he says than to go down some other path. In the plain sense of scripture, when it's speaking, it's best not to question it and to think, well, I don't know if that applies to my situation. It's best to just say, I'm going to trust and obey you, Lord. I know there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, as the hymn goes, but to trust and obey. For the first generation, this wonderfully invited them to leave behind that rebellious heart, even though they couldn't enter the land. To say, okay, we can't go in the land. We've been disciplined but we can make the most of our time with the Lord now. And what a great encouragement for them to do that. Oh, when, when you come to land, I guess it doesn't apply to us. Oh no, yes it does. Maybe you've had a, a failure in your life. Maybe you've had something you look back at where your life got derailed, where you made poor decisions and you suffered consequences for it. Does that mean God's done with you? No way. Maybe you've made multiple failures, bad decisions or bad choices. You've gone down wrong roads or multiple backslidings in your life and you've paid multiple times. Does that mean God's done with you? No way. We see time and time again through the scripture where people were like that. Look at the life of David. David, we look at, you contrast David and and Saul. If you really want to just look at the course of life and say who was the better man from just, you know, where their credentials lie, David lived a lot worse life than Saul. Saul had a serious egregious problem of not being yielded to the Lord though. Whereas David, when he failed, he would come back. He would repent and the Lord would restore him. But to the end of his days, you know, David tried to walk with the Lord. He failed. He, times he got away from the Lord and he made really foolish decisions and there were consequences for them. But to the end of his days, he tried to walk with the Lord. And as a result, every time he came back, the Lord would restore him. Were there consequences? You bet. They're not going to get to go into the land. You may never get to go back and fix whatever it was that got broke the time you messed up. But you can move forward from here. You can continue to know the Lord and he can continue to use you from here. He's not done. Question, of course, now is, okay, well, that's for if we bring one lamb, what if we bring a bunch of lambs or a bunch of rams or a bunch of bulls? Well, verse 11. Thus shall it be done for one bullock or for one ram or for a lamb. And then it mentions a kid here, which would be like a goat, female goat. Apparently you could do that as well because we know from the sin offering you could do that. 
But then he says, verse 12, but according to the number that you shall prepare, so shall you do to everyone to their number. So in other words, if you were to bring four lambs, well, then you've got to prepare four side servings of grain and wine. So the larger your offerings were, the more of the additions you had to bring. So you had to have exactly for how many animals you brought, that's what you had to bring for the side, side offerings. This also applied to foreigners, verse 13. All that are born of the country shall do these things. Everyone born in the the promised land, they will do these things after the manner, in other words, according to these rules, an offering, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Verse 14. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, in other words, he's just temporarily living amongst you, or whosoever be among you in your generations and wants to offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord, in other words, if he's a permanent resident or temporary, it says, as you do, As you do, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be both for you of the congregation, so you're an Israelite, and also for the stranger that sojourns with you. An ordinance forever in your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger, the foreigner, be before the Lord. One law and one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourns with you. I love this. It's interesting. God had mentioned that his laws were the same for Israelites and foreigners before, but now God invites them to bring these freewill offerings too. He says, now, and if you have a stranger who wants to do this, tell him to come. They just need to do it the same way you do it. There came a time in Israel's history where they wouldn't tolerate that. No stranger would be invited to do any of those things. They had lost the plot. They had lost God's heart for the whole world. See, the Old Testament declares God's love for everyone, not just the Jews, and that his plan includes the Gentiles, not just the Jews, and that the Messiah would draw the whole world to God, not just the Jews. God had promised Abraham, and he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through through your seed, right? So this is not something new, but it's something that can very easily be lost. We can become so self-contained and self-absorbed that we forget that God loves everybody else who isn't here tonight, and we must never forget that. The reason most of us, I mean, some of you may be Jewish, but the reason most of us are here tonight, we're dirty Gentiles and Jesus accepted us too, right? Praise God for that. We need to have that same heart towards everyone out there because God wants to invite, he does invite them in as well. Next, the Lord reminds them that they're going to make their own bread in the land instead of eat manna. But they must still recognize that all their provision comes from the Lord. Verse 17. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Here it is again, that surefire promise. When you come into the land, whither I bring you, then it shall be when you eat the bread of the land, you shall offer up a heave offering unto the Lord. And you'll offer up a cake of the first of your dough for a heave offering. As you do the heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you heave it. Of the first of your dough, you shall give unto the Lord a heave offering in your generations. We were introduced to the heave offering in Leviticus Because when they would bring a peace offering, remember the different offerings, the priest sometimes wouldn't get anything. Like the burnt offering, he didn't get anything. All of it was for the Lord because it symbolized total surrender to God. In the sin offering, the trespass offering, if I remember correctly, they got a portion. In the grain offering, they got a portion as well. In the peace offering, they got what was called the heave shoulder and the wave breast. Now the wave breast had a whole nother meaning to it, but the heave shoulder was quite simply, it was just the priest portion. That was what he got. So he got, basically got the big old leg, you know, that's what you got, you know, that was the part, the meaty part of the leg would go to the priest to feed him and his family and whoever was serving to feed them and their families while they were serving. Here we see that he's telling you, you need to give something else 
to the priests. This was the heave portion of their crops that they would bring in. See, God here, he adds a tithe. He adds a 10% tithe, this first part of the food that they eat. The first portion will go to the Lord. And this is where we get our modern day idea of giving 10% of our income to the Lord. See, the fruit of their labors was their crops. That was the fruit of their labors. And so you may have heard a pastor say today, you know, you should tie the portion of your income. The New Testament says that every man as he has purpose in his own heart, let him give to the Lord, but let him do so not sparingly, but generously, and let him do so with a cheerful heart, a hilarious heart. But the reason you get the the idea of 10% from is because of something Jesus said in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 23, 23, you can look it up later, he chastened the Pharisees because he said, listen, you guys measure out, you know, your spices, nine for me, one for God, nine for me, one for God. But you neglect the weightier matters of justice and righteousness and mercy. Now he says, you do the other things, and then Jesus makes the comment, which you should do. So Jesus confirmed that this is still a part of our lives, that we should be giving that first portion of our income to the Lord. Now, I don't say that because I'm the pastor and y'all need to make sure I stay paid. That's not why I'm saying that. You know, it's funny, when I do premarital counseling, we go over finances and we talk about tithing. And I bring up the part, you need to be faithful with whatever God tells you to give, to be obedient and faithful to do it, because it's his He's the one that gives you the ability to work. Everything you have is his. So you just need to be faithful and obedient. Now, but this is where we get that idea of 10% from. So I hear people say, well, tithing's not biblical. And I'm just like, hold on a moment, okay? I realize the New Testament has the concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 of every man has his purpose in his own heart. And that's what I teach. But Jesus did say we should tithe. So I always think that 10% is a really good starting point. I don't think it's a hard and fast number, but I think it's a really good starting point for you to to be at. You know, I I have found often the Lord will ask us to be more generous than that. And I don't think you should just legalistically stick to any number in that sense. But we just need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I've purposed in my heart. Everything I have belongs to you. What do you want me to give? This is what I'm going to give to you. The people failed, but God still wanted to move forward with them. He desired for them to repent and walk with him. He wasn't finished with the Israelites. Likewise, God never gives up on us, even when we fail and completely blow it. God is merciful and waiting for us to repent, turn, and walk with him. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.